Welcome to Hearsay Social on the Air, episode 27. Coming to you from our world headquarters in San Francisco, welcome to Hearsay Social on the Air. I'm Victor Gaxiola. I'm Ronnie Kerr. Advisor of the future. Boom. Boom. <laughs> I can't tell. We've been waiting to, to, to record this show now for quite some time just because, as we'll get into it, we've been writing this white paper now for, for a number of different months. And so we'll talk a little bit about the background of the actual white paper. Uh, and we're going to bring in our colleague and the co-author, Nicole Johnson, who co-authored the paper, and she's joined us you know, into this conversation. So why don't we bring in Nicole? Hey, Nicole. Hi. So welcome to the show, Nicole. And uh, God, it's, it's so exciting because we've been working on this thing now for, for a while. And it's currently available on our website. Um, so, you know, before we actually get started, I mean, we realize that not that many people know who you are, Nicole. So why don't we actually start with talking a little bit about you and your background. So you joined our group and uh, tell us where you came from. Here I am. Sure. So, yes, I am fairly new to the company. Uh, I've been here maybe over a month now. Um, first, I would want to say I want want to say that I'm happy to happy to be here. Happy to talk about uh, the paper today. I think it's really exciting. Um, so, in, in terms of who I am, so I'm Nicole Johnson, uh, native of California, born in Los Angeles, and then moved up here to the lovely San Francisco Bay Area, um, where I was raised and uh, finished my education. Um, shortly after that, I wanted to go back down to Los Angeles and uh, attended UCLA, where <laughs> I think there's a, a little. You're, you're overshadowing. We got three people who went to Southern California schools, right? Because Ronnie went to Pomona, and we went to UCLA. So, so we've got kind of a Southern California, you know, contingent here. Uh, we do. We do. They can't love me in that. Oh, <laughs> you went to school there. But I came too. right back. I grew up in the Bay, went down there for four years, and came right back. All so. right, so California contingent here. Okay. <laughs> yes, I will accept that. So at UCLA, I majored in political science and communications, and so. Um, um, that was at the time where I was really, really uh, starting to get uh, interested in in media and and how it applied at that time to the law. And so that kind of took me um, to the coast of D.C. Um, and in Maryland, where I attended uh, law school. Hmm. And um, you know, I bring that up because uh, you know, as I look back um, from that where I was there to where I am now, everything really all relates and, and kind of forms this one um, contingent bubble that really, really makes sense for me today. Um, so after law school, I got started early on working with um, broadcast agencies, um, starting off at National Public Radio. Um, and this will make sense in a moment as we lead up to how I'm here at Hearsay Social. And so it was at, at the broadcast radio station where I really developed a love for reaching broad audiences and mm -hmm. really figuring out who we are talking to as a whole, whether it's um, a, a radio broadcast audience or whether it's... Um, some other type of um, constituent. So um, I, I worked on various um, research and policy um, projects at, at National Public Radio, First Amendment, communications, internet and technology. That was right around the time where the internet was really um, hitting the mainstream. Um, worked with content licensing and software licensing. And I really got the bug there for um, just continuing to build, build my background in a career that um, would reach multiple audiences. 
And so from there, came back to California, once again, told you I cannot, <laughs> it keeps calling me here. Um, and I, I did several years um, in legal publishing. Um, legal publishing, news, government, um, publishing, consultative sales for companies like uh, Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis. And just a couple of years ago, I was approached by BlackRock, which um, as most of you know, and most of our audience would know, is um, one of the largest, if not the largest asset manager company in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of an interesting uh, take for someone like, uh, um, someone with mostly a legal background and legal and, and publishing background at the time to be approached by um, such a large financial services company. Um, but I tell you, um, one of the reasons why I think um, I was approached by, by the company at that time a couple of years ago, and that is BlackRock, like many other financial services companies um, in the last several years, are really taking note of what's happening in the industry. And at the time that I came on board at BlackRock, they were um, looking for someone who can help develop that relationship with personal investors, the everyday investor, the individual investor, um, they really wanted someone who had an ear toward the consumer, someone who could understand, you know, some regulatory and compliance issues around that, understand the challenges, and on top of all of that, say it in a way that doesn't feel as if I had been saying it for years. Someone with that fresh perspective where um, how can we reach investors and consumers of financial information without sounding so traditional and so archaic and so um, jargony like we've been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. And so... I was privy to to work in such a, a large corporation. Um, being there at that time taught me so much about the industry, so much about what um, advisors and the challenges that they're going through, so much about both sides of the table um, that really kind of honed where we are today here at Hearsay Social. And so um, when I was at BlackRock, that was the time where I kind of started hearing about this company called Hearsay Social. <laughs> um, and the reason why is because, you know, one of the reasons why I was hired was to, at the time at BlackRock, was to keep, keep my ear abreast to the industry. Um, I worked very closely with the digital marketing team there. And th this company, Hearsay Social, just kept coming up. I just kept hearing, I, I kept seeing some of the thought leaders um, at presentations and at seminars and in webinars and on the stage. And, <laughs> and I always kept it in the back of my mind because I think it was pretty early on when I was at BlackRock that I heard about Hearsay Social. And there was no way I was even going to entertain that thought. You know, I'm here at this large company and it's phenomenal, which it is. Um, but long story short, fast forward to today, uh, not, not too long ago, um, maybe a couple months ago, um, there was an opportunity that, that um, I heard about here at the company. A um, couple of conversations with, with some of the team members here, uh, some of the marketing team members, recruiters. Um, we just started talking, you know, you, you included Victor and Ronnie, and um, you know, something started churning inside of me that said, wow, this could really culminate all the things that, you know, from a career perspective, from a passion perspective that, that I would like to do. And I never quite knew why I ever was introduced to financial services until I was introduced to Hearsay Social. Mm. Because for me, coming to Hearsay Social, that, that bridge, that, that knowledge gap that I did not have prior to the FinServe industry, but, but it was definitely, the learning curve definitely took place. Mm -hmm. And so, um, long story short, uh, I was given the opportunity to sit down with the founder, Clara Shai. Um, and, and just that alone is typically unheard of. I mean, I've, I've interviewed with many companies over the years and worked for fantastic companies over the years, but how many companies can I say I actually sat face-to-face -face with the founder to really understand that business model? Mm -hmm. So 
after that that conversation, that was a done deal for me, and um, here I am as their uh, senior content marketing manager at Hearsay. Very impressive. It, it, well, you know, it's the consistency. I mean, it's we've had people here for the Employee Spotlight Series, yeah. and they all have a story to share, either meeting Steve or meeting with Clara, which is one of the things that kind of motivates them that they're in the right place. So I'm kind of curious because we have been doing these Employee Spotlight Series with employees, many of which that have been here for a while. And so they, you know, they can talk and track, you know, through the evolution of the industry. So being one of our newest members and joining here on the marketing team, I'm kind of curious about the work that you're doing. And I kind of know, but I mean, it's more to share the people that are listening, the work that you're doing and then the work that you will be doing. Yeah, so the work that I will primarily be doing uh, you going forward um, really will center around kind of uh, the thought leadership and education of, of really what's happening in the industry. Um, you know, that's, that's, you can kind of look at it two ways, just what's happening in the financial services industry from a, a, not only a digital marketing perspective, but what's happening in terms of um, the changes that are taking place for both our clients, our business, our, our processes. Mm-hmm. And so for me, part of my job here at the company will be to kind of promote what's happening, get the word out, educate the industry, um, the industry vertical, and maybe even broader than that. Um, but just really, really, uh, as thought leaders ourselves in this financial services marketing space to kind of um, share share with the public, share with our audience, whether that audience will be um, the C-level at, at the financial companies or whether the audience will be actual um, advisors or even um, investors and consumers looking for information. We want to be there to say, you know, these are the things that we know about the industry. These are the things that we project about what's happening next. And so for me as a content person, I'm, I, I will be developing strategies to help get that message out using the different channels that we all talk about today. So you're joining us at a really good time because, as you know, today we announced this uh, social and beyond message, which is something we've been excited about in exploring exactly the entire digital landscape of financial services and uh, which comes, you know, full circle to this to this white paper. So you joined our group. and We didn't waste any time really to tap into your background and your knowledge, especially having worked at BlackRock, to really help co-author this one piece that, like I said in the in the introduction, we had been working on for some quite some time. So we really wanted to spend today talking about the themes that we explore in the, uh, the white paper and looking at this landscape of financial services and really trying to answer what we think the advisor of the future, the financial professional of the future, what the world's going to look like, and some of the strategies and things that they should be thinking about doing right now in order to compete in this you know, very competitive business with the changing landscape that includes digital transformation. Yes, yeah, so I, I think you, you hit it right at the nose when you said the world is changing. I, there is no question that digital technology and di- digital innovation is truly changing everything we do from how we buy a car to how we travel to how we listen to music. I mean, it's really, really, truly perme- permeating everyone's lives. And I think that's, that's just an obvious uh, kind of thing that's happening, happening across the board. Um, in terms of financial services and what's happening to the industry, yes, this paper that we, we are presenting really will hone in on how, does, how do these changes, how is digital technology affecting the financial services industry? Because we by no means are, um, um, are, are an exception to the rule. It's, it's, it's happening to, to the industry now and it will continue to happen. 
So coming in at this this juncture to, to talk about that, it's it's definitely ripe a ripe time to talk about it. And um, and so I think the overall message that that we're trying to convey in the paper is embracing digital technology is a must. It's a must not only for your business. It's not. A, it's a must not only for reaching out to your clients. Um, it's it's really a must for survival. It it truly is a must for survival. So we we hope to um, kind of shape shape what those changes will mean for for the future advisor. Yeah, I think the term that we used, and it, I, you know, it's not my term. It's one that I think Brian Solis for the Altimeter Group coined was uh, the idea of digital Darwinism, and we've talked about it before because Ronnie here has been. Did you finish the book? I finally you finished. You it. finished it. Okay, I did, so he's like reading a few the, days ago. Yeah. Oh, good. Because it was four four hundred pages. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it's it's really talking about survival and adaptation and evolution and something. As these are all themes that we've been covering now on this podcast now for for quite some time. And it was really how can we take all these ideas and try to place them in a paper, and and really be able to share this to start those conversations that are already taking place, that you know thematically has kind of if you will, influence the direction of the paper. Because as I was sharing with Nicole earlier today, the original version of this paper, we're like at draft, we were at draft seven, eight, nine, before we actually got to the final draft. The original draft was really more futuristic. It's more along the lines of the flying cars, insofar as that, you know, and Ronnie probably knows this about me, but anyway, I got this idea. It was just like, woke up at four in the morning, and it was this idea of saying, we need to have this conversation that basically says, where is this all leading to? Because up until then, most of the conversation had just been centered around social. And it was talking about, well, what's the end game? You know, what's the end game? Where does this, what's this all leading to? And I thought, you know, you almost need this vision piece to try to, to place yourself as if you took a time machine into 2025, into 2030, and trying to kind of formulate in your head what you thought the world would look like and very specifically what the world would be like for a financial advisor or a financial producer, you know, agent or what have you, what would that world look like? In other words, what would be the tools that I'd have at my disposal? How would I be interacting and communicating with my clients? And then try to work backwards. So the original spirit of the white paper was to try to paint a picture of what we thought the world would look like in 2025 and 2030, work our way backwards to start prescribing, this is the things that you need to talk about. And then I went to the Digital Marketing for Financial Services Summit in, uh, in New York. I had been to the Minnesota Interactive Marketing Association and noticed that there were similar conversations that were talking about disruption and, and transformation and changes that I realized that's a little too far out there. You know, it's a little too distant. We need to make it relatable. We need to bring it back. And so the time frame that we were looking at was more of a five to 10 year time frame, something that was within, you know, the near future, because when you look at the uh, the fact that social media in financial services has really been around since 2010, so you know stretch it back five years, what are the next five and ten years going to look like? And uh, and I think it was the conversations that we had tail end of the year with Clara that kind of started formulating this idea. We need to narrow the focus, make it tangible and approachable, so that people can see this, place themselves in this space, and start understanding what they need to do in order to meet this challenge and this adaptation so that they don't become, you know, obsolete, so that they are, they are relevant when it comes to uh, working in financial services. So I think that was kind of the background that led to it. You've made some major contributions in coming in, taking a look at it, and making it relatable. And then I think that a lot of the, you know, in the part two, if you haven't already read the paper, but if you look at part one and part two, part one sets up the challenges, 
it sets up the world, sets up the, 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 you know, the issues and the things that we're faced up against. And then part two shifts gears and says, these are the things you can do today, you know, going forward so that you can meet the challenges that are part, part one. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely correct. And you, you bring up a lot of good points. And um, I will, will say back, uh, back to, to the paper, we really have identified in this paper generally three main challenges that the advisor of the future will need to look at. There, there are others, but um, we're kind of highlighting and putting it together in, uh, if, if we have to simplify it into three main buckets. Um, and those challenges really center on one, uh, the challenges that are the, the changes that are happening to the client, mm-hmm. um, clients' expectations, clients' um, behaviors, um, the, the things that are happening. The, the client is changing, uh, even the, just the nature of the client base. I think that's such an important part for for us to 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 think about, um, and that's what we're conveying in a paper is that due to forces like technology and other things, the actual client that we serve is changing. Um, and, and just to give an example of that, so um, um, in terms of their expectations, consumers today expect access, 24-7 access to information. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, we all um, are generally digitally enabled um, consumers. And so um, five years ago, maybe we did not expect to see our bank statement, statement at the click of a, a, a button. You know, maybe we expected to see it once a month in, in the form of a, a letter that comes in the mail. Well, today, I know that I, at any given time, if I wanted to check my, my balance statement, I could just log on online and, and see that statement. So, so my expectations are changing. Our consumers' expectations are changing um, just in terms of how we access financial information and probably more so how we seek advice. Um, the second major change that we're seeing, um, and we address this in the paper, I think centers around the actual demographics. Um, I think this is the largest generational gap that we've seen probably ever. And I'm talking, you know, the gap between baby boomers and millennials. And interestingly enough, and, you know, I could kind of be a little perturbed about it. I'm actually a Gen X. I mean, we're like known as like the, 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 the bad middle child, like the, the ignored middle child. I mean, <laughs> no one talks Gen X. You know, I'm, I'm of the era of the breakfast club. And, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't hear much from us. We're, we're pretty quiet in this space. But, yeah. but I, I think, you know, I think the reasons are because, um, you know, the baby boomers were such a, had such big numbers. And, and then you have Gen Y, which are the same as millennials. I think, I think we hear more of that because there's so many differing um, expectations and opinions between those two groups Mm -hmm. on one end you have those who are focused on um, the retirement and things of that that nature and then on the uh, other end of the spectrum you have the millennial generation which knows nothing else other than digital technology Um, so i think that's a big part of understanding the story going forward for financial services and and, and advisors is that we really do have a different uh, a diverse makeup of clients and that's a real thing and i think that will dictate your strategy in reaching out to them. And the third and final challenge, so to speak, that we're, we're focusing on in this paper is something that we've all heard about in the last several months, and that is the idea of automated tools and new technologies that are totally changing the nature of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear the talk of robo-advisors. We, we hear uh, talk of how, how to reach out um, to our clients with, with communication uh, tools. That's, that's going to be really a big thing in the next several years, and, and I imagine five, ten years down the line. Mm-hmm. And, and by way of, you know, kind of background as far as the introduction and, and 
you know, how we arrived at these challenges was really taking a look at how consumers are actually interacting with each other first and how they're interacting with brands. And so I think that at the onset, when we started changing that mind frame or the mindset, if you will, of moving away from this futuristic world to the more tangible world, I really started thinking about my own experience, and Ronnie and I had talked about this just in our own experiences working uh, and being consumers about you know, how people are buying products and services today. So taking a kind of a step back and looking at the big picture and saying, you know, not only how people are buying, but how are they communicating? And I just found that, you know, even in my own communication, I'm leaning more towards Facebook and some other social mediums and connections or even text messaging and how I communicate with people. So this whole idea of, you know, digital is part of my everyday and how I relate with people. And the shift there is, it's also shifting to how we relate with brands. And, uh, you know, I've said, said, shared countless stories about my interactions with, you know, United Airlines and different brands and using that digital and the social tools to communicate with them. And so that kind of leads to the fact that, you know, people have access to information at their fingertips. And that's what's helping them drive and make these buying decisions on the products and services that they buy. And having that informed public really speaks to the changes that we're seeing. And and one of the concepts that we talk about and has been often talked about is this whole idea of the buyer's journey, Mm -hmm. which is to say that an informed public is doing a lot of the homework, as you said, before they buy televisions or cars or any product or service. They've done a lot of the homework. Mm -hmm. So they're coming at this informed before they even engage with any salesperson to take them, if you will, through the, you know, to the finish line. So the, the whole basis of the paper was saying, if we can at least agree or, or, or if we can come to the conclusion that that experience of how people interact with each other first, how they interact with brands and how they're buying products and services, if we can accept that all that is changing or has changed, what does the advisor, what does the agent and producer need to do for their business to remain relevant in this space? And, and, and you know, going back to the concept of digital Darwinism, it was you need to embrace digital. You need to embrace the multi-channel approach because that's what your consumer is expecting. And that's really what came up with the challenges that you just outlined. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, um, I, I think, I think you know, it, it requires an understanding of, of, of knowledge in, in, into the consumer's perspective um, in terms of how, how much do they know. And as an advisor, what can I take from that when they do uh, engage with me and interact um, with, with me uh, as an advisor, um, it, it's a matter of knowing, like, now I can give them the relevant information that they need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about, I mean, this is a high trust environment, right? Which, where we say that, you know, there's consumer expectations as it relates to brands and being a little bit more, you know, telling and having more information 24-7 and their expectations have increased. But I'd say even more so, like the standards expected for transparency and authenticity in financial services, as certainly, you know, the bar continues to raise, especially after the market situations that we had in 2008 and 2009, that we're still kind of just now kind of getting past some of this. And we're scarred. I mean, I understand we had um, we had a visit here from uh, a CEO from Vanguard Group. And uh, one of the things that he shared, which was really interesting, is that the younger generations, you know, and I think he was kind of speaking, I don't know that he was, you know, specifically calling out the millennial generation, how there is a little bit more risk aversion than there was, at, at, you know, similar age groups, if you will, in generations past. And I think a lot of that has been as a result of the downturn in the market. And so it's really trying to recognize, you know, these demographic shifts that are taking place and how it affects how people should be positioning their business. So I've read the white paper. I've 
seen multiple iterations. I've seen the final, and it's it's all good stuff. But for somebody who's approaching it for the very first time, uh, what should they expect? What should they be going in there with? What kind of mind? And, and who is this really for? You know, when we designed the paper, I think originally I kept thinking that it was mostly for the financial advisor, you know, individual out there in the field that is, you know, needing, if you will, that push to understand why, why yep. they need a digital social presence. And then originally, like I said, when we started writing this paper, a lot of it was driven around the social conversation, and then it became broader and broader to include the entire digital presence, which mm -hmm. includes websites and email. And, and, and so as it became broader, I thought, well, the audience is a little broader now because it's no longer just speaking to the financial advisor, but to a certain extent, there was this other audience, which is more the C-suite, the C-level executive. And, you know, fortunately, working here at Hearsay Social, we've had access to, uh, to spend some time with CEOs in the space. And when they talk about their challenges and what they're trying to do in their organizations, uh, be it Transamerica, be it Vanguard, be it any of these other organizations, you get a real sense of, hey, this paper is more than just for that individual kind of, you know, in the field, working with clients. We need to convince or at least make a strong case, if you will, to every level of the organization from the top all the way down to the bottom. And so the audience uh, just kept growing. And it was saying that's why we need to make this a very strong position and saying, you know, embrace this digital technology and going back to the concept of digital Darwinism, because if not, you're really placing at risk, you know, being relevant. And uh, there's still going to be an audience that's going to resist. We've talked about this in the past, and that's okay. But moving forward and with the expectations of consumers and how they're purchasing products and services and other things that are less complicated or less, you know, that may have like less of a massive impact in their livelihood and their retirement years, it's very important for people to start looking at, you know, how the world is changing and then how they can embrace it for their practice. Right. And as you start reading through the paper, uh, you'll, you'll hear a lot of the things that we've talked about today, changes across the industries, across business, uh, but also specifically about how those are affecting financial services in regard to things Nicole mentioned, uh, information at our fingertips. Every consumer has got a mobile device and, and access to Google, uh, and how the buyer's journey has changed, and how dem demographics are uh, transforming brand expectations. And I feel like all of these things come back to presence and how much your presence relates to relevance. Can, can you guys talk about that a little bit? I think that is the central point of, of what we're trying to say with the paper is that, you know, what must the industry, what must advisors, what must we do to stay relevant and, and why is that so important? And, and that will kind of, um, you'll, we'll talk about it in a moment in terms of the threats, um, but it, it is gravely important to, to maintain that, that sense of relevancy um, for the simple fact that we do want to be around and, and advisors do want to be uh, available for their for their um, their customers. And so I think that's what we're saying. Uh, wh why should we stay relevant? There are threats. Um, we're, we're conveying in the pa in the paper. Um, these are the things that you can do to stay relevant. Yeah. And I think that the threats, you know, come at it twofold. You know, the massive threat is, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that there is that risk of doing nothing. You know, it's the status quo. Of course. Which if you're not doing anything to really affect your business, what you're what you can expect is that you're not you're unlikely to grow the business if you're un, if you're unwilling to make the changes to keep up with the changing consumer expectations. 
But one of the other things that we don't talk about much, and we talk about it quite a bit when it comes to social and looking for the acquisition, is the retention of your existing client base. Because if there are alternatives out there that are a little bit more receptive or communicative to your clients, you are at risk of losing those clients as well. Uh, because there are these alternatives that are starting to surface. And, um, and so I think part of it was just kind of like looking at the paper almost like as a wake-up call. And I don't, you know, I don't think we're first to market with this kind of idea and this concept. It's just that I think that we may be one of the first to market that actually has a solution mm -hmm. that is really addressing this thing by looking at the entire digital solution. So before we get into tangible steps for advisors, let's just make sure we drill down on, on the threats you guys uh, talk about in the white paper. Um, and so I guess the first would be commoditization. And, and I think gallons and gallons of ink has been spilled on the topic of robo-advisors. But what's, what's your take um, on commoditization in regards to the advisor of the future? Well, I think that there's a lot of different schools of thought on this. And we've heard him from both sides. You know, we have on one end of the spectrum someone like Ted Jenkin, who we interviewed in episode nine, when he, when he looked at this as a massive opportunity. You know, he, he, he talked about how back in the day, you know, when other of these online trading f platforms became available and you can execute a trade online with an E-Trade or so at, you know, for a couple of dollars, you know, that when that first came out, that a lot of people thought that his business was going to be threatened, that he was going to be out of business because they had these automated tools that were basically doing the things that he was doing. Mm -hmm. But there's more to it. I mean, Ted is doing a lot more, as more advisors are doing for their clients other than just executing trades or buying mutual funds or selling a stock or bond. They are actually helping solve people's problems. Right. You know, yeah. they're providing a certain level of comfort. And so uh, when you've got someone like Ted or I can even, you know, even at the executive level, someone like Tash Elwin, the president of Raymond James, who's looking at big data and automated algorithms and tools to really be a use, uh, a useful tool for advisors and the kinds of information that it could provide based on actionable activity. Uh, you know, I think he mentioned he envisioned this like world where an advisor could come into the, the their office in the morning and have like action items of things that they can do based on intelligence that had been gathered through big data. So it's almost like this whole judo move. Instead of seeing it as a threat, how can I turn this threat into an asset? Now, that being said, I think what we're coming at it is we can't dismiss it, though, because it can be a threat insofar as the potential loss of assets if it's an alternative, especially for the next generation that I think is going to feel a lot more comfortable, perhaps, working directly with an online solution like a Wealthfront or a Betterment, as opposed to the actuality of actually needing to talk to an individual. And right. I think as we have talked in the past about this, that depends on what stage you are in your life. Because I think it's easy to embrace uh, a robo-advisor solution if, uh, if you're in the accumulation phase, right? So you're just growing your portfolio, you're working, you're contributing to 401k, perhaps you do a roll rollover, you move some of those assets or other assets to a wealth front or a betterment you kind of manage it through an algorithm, you're making asset allocation selections based on your risk tolerance, and you may not need to talk to someone. But as your life gets more complicated, as you buy a house, as you have children, as you have other liabilities and such, and the complexity of your life changes, and especially as you, re you, you step into retirement and you start getting into a distribution stage, then you kind of need some help. You know, you need to talk to somebody who's going to help you make tax-efficient decisions and how you manage your money and how you're going to have that nest egg generate a certain amount of revenue 
for your retirement. And I think the other point about robo-advisors, which often comes up as to why I don't think it's as huge of a threat as I think the financial social media press might be making it out, is it's untested in a bear market. You know, it has yet to be tested. It's easy to accumulate assets when things are going great. Yeah. Right. Right. But who are you going to call if the market takes a turn? You know, and I don't envision necessarily that hopefully in our lifetimes we won't see a situation like we did in 2008 or 2009 where the market just tanked. But if you have your money in Wealthfront or if you have your money, let's say, at one of these rover advisors and such, and I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of what they're, what they're doing if it means a better and informed client base. But what I'm concerned about is in a down market, are you going to call an 800 number? Are right. they going to know that you have kids? Are you, you know, they don't know those things. Right. And uh, John Taft spoke about this in, mm-hmm. in a, a Wall Street Journal article um, recently. And um, I think just uh, to, to piggyback in, on that, um, in terms of what we can do, John, John Taft talked about do something better, um, do something that cannot be replicated online, basically. And that, that touches to the whole life goals, lifestyle changes. You know, those are things that just really require that sophistication um, and that, that listening ear, so to speak, um, where you're actually sitting down with, advi- with an advisor. I, I, think, I, think, I think most most of us in the industry are, are in agreement that, that robo-advisors will not replace overall the, um, the need for, for um, brick and mortar advice. Um, I think it's just we have to be a little smarter in, um, in, in how, we, how we use that um, before we, when we reach out to our client. Great, yeah. And uh, I think beyond robo-advisors, I think you guys get into other kinds of threats in other forms of competition. Can you talk about that as well? Yeah, I think part of the other discussion as far as competition and concern is, you know, you look at certain themes like commoditization insofar as the threat of, you know, getting to a place where you're competing completely on price. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, the robo-advisor will introduce is mm. this price discussion. Yeah. And, and, you know, in financial services, we often would say, you know, that price is only an issue in the absence of value. And so it's really trying to remind the client, what is the value that you as an advisor, agent, or producer is really adding to this relationship with your clients? You know, and, and to actually place a value on it because it is more than just, like I said, executing a trade. And it goes back to the discussion that we had had, Ronnie, if you recall, from the, uh, the holidays where I joined Kim on a, on, a, on a visit with a client. And 95 to, you know, 99% of the conversation was not related to financial services at all. Yeah. You know, so it, t- it speaks to the relationship, a certain comfort level mm-hmm. that comes with having that relationship insofar as that we know these people, we understand what their risk tolerances are, we know what their goals are. And so, you know, one of the other threats, I think, when it comes to, you know, not working with an advisor is that one of the, one of the things that I think the advisor will do very well is, is protects clients against themselves, you know, against their own knee-jerk reactions to adverse situations in the marketplace. It's telling person to sell when it's right to sell and to hold when it's right to hold and uh, and knowing enough about their situation to be able to help them make those decisions. And that's not something that I think is easily re- replaceable, um, which is why I personally don't think it's a huge threat, but I can't dismiss it either. You know, mm-hmm. I can't dismiss the fact that a lot of assets are going to move to these platforms. Yeah. Um, and so it's important to recognize that when if, if an advisor gets to the point where they actually are competing 
to the point of commoditization, then they've really are just marginalizing their practice. And it's not a good place to yeah, be. Yeah, it makes me think that uh, basically, I don't, I don't know how many there are like this, but if you're a financial advisor that functions like a robo-advisor, then yes, you're at risk. You're mm -hmm. at risk from a robo-advisor taking your business and you're at risk from an advisor that provides real value to their clients from taking your business. So it's a great point. Um, and then want to talk about the last piece as well, the last uh, threat discussed in the paper. And, and again, this comes back to relevance. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think uh, the whole kind of tenet of the paper is how to, you know, when we talk about how to stay right. relevant, I think the threat there is just, uh, you know, what we kind of alluded to earlier is that if you don't, if you're not relevant, if you're not competing in today's digital age, you really will not be able to keep up not, uh, with your clients, with the competition. Um, and so I think that that's really what we're saying. We're saying if you do not embrace technology, if you are not aware of the different communication channels and streams that your clients are, are using, if, if you're not present and, and engaging and interacting with, with a diverse um, client base, you will lose out, you, you, you will fail, it, you will, may not survive um, in the next five, 10 years. And so when we think about relevance, we're, we're, projecting, we're projecting things that you can actually do to maintain that sense of relevancy and value for the client. We talked about that just, just, just a moment ago in terms of just doing what you do best and creating a, a situation where you provide that personal value um, that, that we, we, we're all known for. So and we'll talk about that in the part two um, as we get into that. Yeah, so let's do that. Uh, we've set the stage. We've talked a little bit about the background and some trends and how the industry is, the state of the industry today and some of the threats. Uh, let's talk about tangible steps that advisors can take. And I just want to say I think it's awesome that, that the paper changed from being a futuristic 20 <laughs> to 50 year outlook <laughs> to being a 5 to 10 year outlook. And I think, I think readers will appreciate that because that means we can actually hold you to it <laughs> and actually in a few years say, hey, you were right about this and you were wrong about this. Uh, hopefully you're mostly right. Um, but so let's talk about what advisors can do today to, to start meeting these challenges, start meeting these threats. And, and uh, what would you say is the first one, the most important? So I, I would say first and foremost that um, it's going to be difficult, but not impossible um, in terms of how we're going to address this going forward. Um, and I think uh, what our most difficult part will be is to change your mindset. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's always hard. <laughs> I mean, if you mm -hmm. just think of, of any individual, any company, that, that's probably going to be the biggest challenge um, in, in moving forward um, in, in navigating uh, the, the landscape. Um, but it truly is going to be essential to, to, to finding success. And so changing your mindset will require um, creating more personalized services, um, using technology that people want when they want it in the form that they want it. It really will require um, looking at what the customer wa wants as opposed to what the business wants to tell the customer. And uh, that's what we, we kind of uh, start off in the paper as, as step one. Yeah, I think it's really just revisiting and reframing your business and understanding that the way of conducting the business, like the tried and true formats, you know, are not the same. And it goes back to the argument, you know, when it came to presenting social um, it, it's changing the mindset of social as being not only, you know, potential for prospecting and finding new clients, but retaining your existing clients, you know, up against the more tradition, traditional way that a lot of advisors or people in financial services were looking to acquire clients, you know, so 
you know, cold calling, you know, it's just not working like it used to. Direct mail, I mean, who, you know, they just throw that <laughs> stuff away. Um, you know, infomercials and even seminars for that case. You know, Kim and I used to do a lot of seminars and such. And, you know, it's funny because the other day um, I was picking up the mail from my parents and they had received like multiple invitations to a seminar you know, where an advisor was going to basically pitch them, you know, three or four different ideas that they should be thinking about. And I just was kind of laughing because I thought, it's funny to me that people are still attempting to do this in this format uh, to create those relationships. And it just seems so out outdated for me that I, I just thought that I think that, you know, changing that mindset and changing that frame of reference is, you know, at least getting to that point where you admit <laughs> to yourself that the world has changed, it's yeah. gone digital, and then once you kind of embrace the idea that this next generation of either investors or even existing investors for that standpoint, that their expectations have changed, well, so does the delivery. You know, that needs to change as well. Yeah, and I think it's, it's not, you know, it's, it'll be difficult. I think, you, you know, read our, read our white paper, <laughs> yeah. read, check out those trends, you know, but, you know, fact check them. Look, look, up, look online, look, look through your own sources and see, you know, how are the demographics changing? How are people's mindsets changing? And and that'll, I think, convince you as well. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and it will yeah, require a, a new strategy uh, for, for many businesses. Uh, um, just truly, um, it will require investing more in, in uh, digital resources and, and more people resources. And so um, not just for marketing, but for product development, customer service, um, many lines of business within an organization. So... Um, that, that shifting of the mindset and shifting from an old model to a more new, modern way of uh, working, I think, will be essential. Right. And I think mean, you were asking about tangible, right? So if people are sitting there saying, what can I do? You know, if an advisor is thinking, okay, I bought into the idea, or if they've read the white paper, now they're rushing, hopefully rushing to read, you know, read the white paper. <laughs> but when they're getting to the point where they're saying, okay, I want, like, give me, give me a prescription. You know, so I'm looking at Nicole and such. And, and I think that where we arrived at is, if you can embrace these ideas and you kind of understand that this is the direction we're headed, you know, where do you start with having a digital presence? And and I would say that the first place for a lot of organizations, for a lot of people to start with is establishing a website. You, know, you start with a website that has your contact information, speaks to your business, your practice, has the information regarding where your office location is. You know, and there's different levels of, of websites, but really trying to make that you know, as dynamic as possible that really speaks to who you are. And I think that that is really the hub, if you will, where you start off having that digital presence. Mm -hmm. It helps with your, you know, your SEO and search. So that if somebody, let's say if Nicole is a, you know, financial advisor and I go up and I look her up or I do a Google search, she's going to pop up. You know, it's going to come up and I'm going to have access to her website. So I think, I think it starts with establishing that digital presence with a website, okay? And then the second area and this is the area that we talk and we were, you know, for the most part, traditionally talking a lot about is social, is having that dynamic social interaction, which really speaks to having conversations, right? And the conversations start with having that presence, but then having something to talk about. And that's where the content comes in. So it all kind of comes together. So I think that, you know, for a lot of those people who are out there who have access to the possibility of establishing a website, you start with that. Um, and then you know, hopefully you can embrace and bring in, if you will, the dynamics, you know, the dynamic interactions and the ability to share content and listen to your clients through a social presence. And then beyond that is really looking at customizing, you know, messages and ways to really get in front of your customers with the kind of content that they want to hear. And it goes back to the conversation we had with Elysian uh, at NewsCred, which is really getting the right message to the right audience at the right time. 
and that's you know that's that's the golden ticket right there. I was waiting for it, but you didn't get yeah. get to it. How how does how does mobile f- then factor into these things? Because obviously, mobile is a crucial element to both your social and and website strategy. Yeah, I think that in in the mobile space and and you know we've we, in exploring that, I think it just needs to be responsive. It should be reflective of all your other digital channels, so that if you have a website. You need that website to be able to be responsive insofar as that it renders well on a tablet or it renders, you know, looks really good on a, on a mobile device because I think statistically more and more people are accessing, accessing websites and they're accessing social sites through their mobile device. So a, uh, a smartphone-friendly approach is definitely something you need to consider in the architecture and the build of your digital strategy. Yeah, I really think it's, uh, it's really an integrated approach, um, just finding that, that happy medium um, where you're consistent and relevant across multiple channels, where there's mobile, social, web, email. I think those messages will need to resonate um, in many different ways to target the, the, the audience. And again, that, that kind of goes back to something we Victor and I have talked about many times before, which is, this is nothing new. You, you, you know that you need to be consistent across all your channels, whether it was your mailers before and your webinars and your in-person meetings, now you're really just applying that to your digital presence as well. Yeah, and one of the other things, too, that we highly recommend, and this is something that, you know, you talk about that in the traditional setup of, let's say, a branch office for financial advisors, you could have anywhere between, you know, 12 to 16, depending on the size of office, of financial advisors all in one space and one floor. And when I worked for... uh, Wells Fargo Advisors just here in San Jose, one of the things that was really interesting was we had about that many people in the branch office. And I used to, it was fascinating to me that, you know, when you sit there and say that we all fundamentally do the same things, which is really work with our clients, understand their goals, understand their risk tolerance, and then, you know, provide some investment strategy advice and design portfolios and such. But what was never lost on me is this whole idea is like, why is it that our customers, our clients choose to work with us? You know, what is it about us that makes us different from the advisor in the next office and the next office? Because like I said, at the end of the day, if we are all doing our jobs right, the performance evaluation over the course of 20, 30 years shouldn't be all that different. I mean, if we're doing our job, right? And so it speaks more to the experience. So what I'm, what I'm kind of driving at is the other real tangible thing that I think advisors need to do uh, or agents and producers is sit down and say, what are my strengths? You know, what am I really good at? What is it? What is it that where I am adding the most value, and then use digital kind of leverage that story, to tell that story, or to or to seek out that specific tribe, that specific customer, that they really could play and, and leverage those strengths to connect with, uh, because I think it really helps with both the retention, but it really helps with acquisition as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So we've covered quite a few different things, and I, I, in regards to the technology, we've talked about some pretty big areas: mobile, social, website presence. Is there anything else we're missing that that the advisor should be aware of and should start taking tangible steps toward? Yeah, I think that you know, just kind of playing off the the conversation regarding you know finding your tribe and the niche markets and the people who are playing to their strengths based on the audience that they're seeking. That one of the benefits of social and digital is the fact that it's it, it takes away any of the limitations that come with borders. You know, so traditionally a lot of the uh, advisor base would build a lot of their business around their physical proximity, if you will, uh, or their footprint, you will, to the access to clients. So, you know, if you were based in an office in San Jose, it's very likely that your client base is going to be between 25 to 30 mile radius of that office. The nice thing about digital and social is the fact that if you play to your strengths and you're looking for that niche market, 
then that's no longer an impediment. And so you do have access to clients in other geographies. And, you know, Kim has clients in Illinois. She has clients in New York. She has clients in Florida. She has clients in Texas. And they're all over the place. And she communicates with them now, not only by phone, but she also can communicate with them via Skype. You know, she can communicate through new technology. So in the embracing new technologies is saying, let's get beyond the phone. Let's get beyond email. And let's look at other ways that they can interact. Um, for those of you who have been lucky enough, Fidelity in Boston has this amazing office. It's called the, uh, the, the Fidelity Office of the Future, I believe. And um, Bill Winterberg, if you get a chance, check out fppad.com. He actually did a tour, and he did a video tour, and it's outstanding oh, cool. uh, because he went and he interviewed, and they, they did a walk around. And what was really neat is it was basically a physical office that they've built with multiple rooms to show and illustrate to people exactly where they envision the future is going to be as to what this office space looks like mm -hmm. and how people are going to interact with their clients. And a lot of it was basically recognizing that the intimate face-to-face -face physical in the same room conversation is becoming less and less because people are pretty busy. Mm -hmm. And they're more receptive and accepting, if you will, of having these conversations through a Skype call as we are here in this office because we talk to the folks in New York and Europe and Asia yep. through these, you know, um, through these mediums like a Skype or a Fuse where we're talking to each other. And so, you know, it's kind of translating this technology that we're used to using in our business space into the relationship between advisors and their clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. And so I kind of want to round off this section on tangible steps just to ask about, you know, we talked about changing demographics in terms of consumers quite a bit, but what about, the next generation of advisors. How how does changing demographics affect that area? And what what would you say to, you know, the, the current group of advisors? What the, what they should be thinking about as as the next generation of advisors starts entering the workforce? Yeah, and and Victor, maybe you can jump in in, in a moment as well. I know where we we've both developed this, and so um, basically in terms of uh, the aging advisor, you know, because with with the demographic changes, there are advisors that are, that are aging as well. And so I think the question really turns on how do we make sure that the next generation of advisors are, success, are successful and, and how do we make sure and, and, and enable firms to attract the right type of talent um, in their succession planning and, and other things. And uh, what we're saying in the paper um, is actually for companies um, and firms to make a concentrated effort to reach out to, to this, uh, this additional aging demographic, um, the advisor, and also use technology and efficiencies to, to do that. And so mm -hmm. maybe you can uh, kind of further elaborate, but we, 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 we think that's, that's going to be a real, real need. Mm. I think if we industry-wise can accept the premise that digital you know, is definitely here to stay and social is here to stay and that we're a little bit more open to embracing these digital, digital technology and the transformation they're doing to the business, that it just makes sense that uh, firms will actually get to a point where they're competing and having the best technology to attract the right kind of talent to serve this next generation of investors. Correct. And and part of that is, I mean, you, you don't need to look much further than just the demographic shifts that are going to be happening in the transfer of wealth. And so I think that that's why people might be threatened by the robo-advisors, because if we don't find this talent and develop this talent by giving them the tools and the technology to really support this next generation of investors, then a lot of those investors likely will go to anybody who's actually paying them attention, you know. And it could be the robo-advisor. It could be the wealth fronts and the betterments of the world that are actually reaching out and taking a very proactive stance 
to get to them. So when it comes to recruitment, I think it's, you know, at a firm level, it's develop the technology to really attract that person who is in college, who wants to have a career in financial services, and uh, really make it extremely attractive to have them join your firm because you're providing at their fingertips the very kind of tools that give them the big data and the information that makes them not only a better advisor, but, uh, you know, a better business person in building their own practice. And the other thing is, you know, there are certain instances where you're going to find, and I've seen this actually, where you have an advisor who's approaching retirement on their own. And, and, you know, and they've built this book of business that is basically their life's work. You know, they've spent 30, 40 years developing these relationships, establishing a business. And much like the person who might own, you know, a car dealership or perhaps a dental practice or a doctor, you know, with patients, they care about their clients. They really do. They care about these people and they want to make sure that they're left in the right hands. And so one of the things that we've seen from a succession planning standpoint is one of the other ways is they know that it may be too late for them necessarily to embrace a lot of these digital technologies for them because they're not really interested necessarily in some cases for growth. They just want to retain what they have and ensure that the people that they do have pass on to somebody who can continue, if you will, with the same level of values and systems. So what we're seeing is a lot of partnering that's taking place. And I I envision that this is going to be something that's going to grow, especially if you have a young person who wants to get into this business where they can come to almost represent that next generation of investors and advisors Mm -hmm. and partner up with a more senior advisor. Because one of the toughest things to do in this business is to get started. It really is to grow that book of business. So I I envision that we're going to see a lot more partnering going on between a more seasoned advisor who brings in the next generation of of advisors to help them, if you will, with their existing book of business so to make sure that they're in in a good place, but also bringing in, you know, new assets uh, based on, you know, the next generation of of investors who are, you know, digital digital natives. They're used to using these tools. Awesome. Well, thank you both. I think it's been a really rich discussion. Uh, I think we're all excited to get this white paper out the door, and I, I think it'll provide many discussions over the coming months. And it's been the culmination of tons of research and interviews with thought leaders across our industry. And so really excited about it. Victor, why don't you tell our listeners where they can read it? Well, our white paper is available on our website, and we'll also make it available as part of the show notes of today's episode. Um, I also want to encourage people, um, we do have a hashtag for the paper, so if you want to have questions or you want to reference some of the comments on the paper, please use hashtag advisor of the future. Now, we know it's long, but uh, (laughs) that way we know we'll get it. So hashtag advisor of the future if you'd like to continue the conversation with myself and with Nicole. Great, and I think uh, just in terms of uh, final thoughts, I, I would just say that, that this white paper is something that we will use going forward. I think it's going to spark mark, spark many more conversations. Um, and I think overall, uh, what we want to take from this and what we hope you take from it as well is that the challenges that, that we lay out um, can really be seen as opportunities and the advisor of the future can reap immense opportunities and uh, benefits um, in the form of deepened customer relationships, better customer engagement, increased trust and loyalty, and finally, hopefully, um, growth of your business. So um, it's really exciting, and uh, we, we hope you, you take a look and, and read it. Good stuff. Well, we thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you will take a look at the, uh, the white paper. Coming up in our next episode, we'll have uh, a conversation with Jeremy Floyd of BPV Capital Management and continue talking 
about the digital transformation that's taking place in financial services. So we hope you'll stay tuned for that. And, uh, and with that, we just want to thank you again for listening to Hearsay Social on the Air. I'm Victor Gaxiola. I'm Ronnie Kerr. And our guest, Nicole Johnson. So thank you so much. We'll see you next time.